I'm Molly O'Connor. And I'm Sarah Connell Sanders. And you're listening to Pop It. This is the podcast for popping questions, popping bottles, and pop culture. Welcome. This is an exciting episode. <laughs> oh, well, thank you for entertaining my uh, my side hobbies. <laughs> Your side hustle? <laughs> yeah. In addition to teaching and being a podcast host, I wrote a book. A podcastress? A podcastress. <laughs> Did I just invent that? Yeah. Um, you wrote a book. Yeah. Yeah, it's called Small Teaching K-8, to but there's a lot of things I learned about the brain and just like how to put something into your long-term memory that I think could help anyone. Yeah, I think it can even, it can be like teaching yourself. Yes. And this is not a sales pitch either. Like, please don't go out and buy the book unless you're a teacher. It probably doesn't make sense. But if you want to help, request it at your local public library. Um, I do have to say, though, it is written in a very accessible tone. Thank you. Um, And in such a way where, like, the examples and the metaphors and analogies that are used, I think, are very – you can, like, see it. Makes sense. Well, I was hoping to talk about it through kind of a pop culture lens today. So I'm thinking that that style will lend itself. It's perfect. Um, We – my dad is watching the baby downstairs (laughs) and she's crying a little, so I hope – I hope the sound doesn't reverberate too much. It's a slice of life. It sure is. (laughs) Um, So, Sarah, I'm going to ask you some questions. Oh, my God. Thanks, Molly. I feel like Katie Couric. This is awesome. I was like, I've never – I was thinking to myself, I was like, what do authors – this is an interview of an author, like a a writer. (laughs) Like, you wrote a book. Like, I've never interviewed – have we interviewed someone who's written a book? I'm not sure we have. I feel like we've talked to people who've maybe contributed to things. But, Yeah. yeah. I was like, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a, this is like a big time interview. Oh my God. <laughs> well, my first question, because I think a lot of people are like, wow, I see Sarah everywhere. She's always having events. She has a full-time job. She just had a baby. I think a lot of people are like, how did this happen? How did you like write a book? When did you start it? Yeah. Just like, how did we get here? So that's a great question because it actually, I wrote it like a long time ago. I mean, not a long time ago, but a couple of years ago. And these things take a really long time. So I learned a lot just about the publishing process too. But it started because I have a mentor. His name's Jim Ling. And he is a professor at Assumption. Uh, and he's written six books and the most successful one was called small teaching. It was for new professors. The idea is like, if you are really great at chemistry, it doesn't necessarily mean you know how to teach 19 year olds chemistry Mm -hmm. as their freshman professor. And so he went through some basic research based, um, techniques for new professors that would be really helpful. And then colleges and universities started buying it up for their faculties and their new faculty members all over the country. And so it sold so well that the publisher, Josie Bass, which is like part of Wiley, they said, we want to, to scale this. Like, can you do it for K to eight? So kindergarten, eighth grade. And he said, yeah, but I don't teach those aged kids. Like his wife is a kindergarten teacher, so she's really helpful. But he said, I just don't feel like I have the experience to write it myself. And also, like, aren't teachers experts on education? They don't need to learn how to teach. So he brought it to me. He's, he always says, like, it's because I read your column. But I'm like, no, Jim, I think it's because we hit it off over beers at a library event. Um, and I was like, 
you're a writer. Like that is my dream. I want to know everything. And so he kind of gave me my shot. So you made a great point. Um, or rather, I guess he kind of did not a great point because I'm going to kind of flip it, but like where he said, teachers know how to teach, right? Mm-hmm. Like they're experts on teaching. I think that, or education, right? And I right. think a lot of teachers are experts on education or on teaching, but a lot of people, a lot of teachers thrive because they are like experts on their kids yeah. or experts on, you know, any number of things that isn't necessarily like literally just like education theory or something like that, right? Yes, so much of what we do is related to trauma-informed instruction Mm -hmm. and social-emotional learning. And this book touches on those things, but that's definitely not the focus. Right. It's like the science of learning. Like, how do I move something from my working memory to my long-term memory? Yes. And one thing that I think is really cool about this book, because teachers, I think, are, they're not necessarily looking to attend seminars or be lectured to, but teachers are often looking for things that they can like put to use easily with like clear kind of instruction on how to do it um, and given rationale for it. Teachers like to find things that if you tell them something today, they can try it in their classroom tomorrow. Or I find that, right? And it won't be like a cutesy thing with tons of planning. Yes. So that kind of informed our angle. It had a lot to do with teacher retention. So since I started 15 years ago in the classroom, they told me one in six teachers leave every year. Uh, and that's six. Like a lot. Yeah. We'll talk about the number six soon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but after the pandemic, it went to 50%. We're quitting or transferring at the end of 2022. And I'm like, 50%? Oh, no. We're going to have problems soon. Yeah, that's or we already too do. much. <laughs> Is your school struggling to staff? Um, yeah, it, especially in, like, certain areas I find, too, mm-hmm. like, um, particularly, like, ABA type, which yeah. is applied behavior analysis. Um, so that would be staff who works with students um, that might have behavioral issues or other, like, n- neurological differences. Yeah. Um, so people like that, stuff like that. So there's this big gap and it's not just teachers aren't going into preparation programs. It's also like people switching careers. People are leaving. Yeah. Yeah. Rapidly. And so we decided to think of it as a low effort, high reward guide. So like research-based practices, but the ones that are super easy, you're probably already doing them, but let us tell you, which ones are worthwhile? Like, which ones should you be spending most of your time on? Right. And why? Right. Because there might be something that you do every day because someone maybe gave you a tip and it's really cool to see on that side of it because a lot of it is new things or things that you're reminded of. But there is sometimes like you, you'll read and I'll be like, wow, like I do that. (laughs) It's, this is why though. It should be (laughs) affirming. Yeah. And I think with teachers so often we don't share the science like you get these shiny new curriculum materials and there's some <laughs> very charismatic presenter on the first day of school being like here's the new way to teach math or yeah. whatever this is not that it's based on neurological and cognitive experts advice and their research and these studies what is the best way to move information into the long-term memory because i think that's what really good teachers do you leave their class with more knowledge Mm -hmm. in your long-term memory. Right. And I think that a lot of people think moving knowledge into your long-term memory means, oh, I remember it. I've memorized it. And 
the book does a great job also, we can talk about, of just like explaining how there's um, even levels like to that, how like the attainment of the knowledge is is the baseline and then we can expand it, right? Because I loved how the, uh, in the introduction to the book, Sarah frames the situation of like teachers being given new curriculums all the time or new practices or new things that we look at each other and it is, it's, this is so true. It's kind of universal, I think, where we're like, we just want to teach the way we know how to teach, the way we know what our kids need to know. And yeah. so this is like, or need to be taught, right? And this is this is looking for like, it's a menu, basically. It's universal design for mm-hmm. like how to connect with every single kid in different areas or in different like, basically like steps of a learning process. You talk about Bloom. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bloom's taxonomy, it's this, and I'm sure if you're a teacher, you're really familiar with it, but if not, you probably haven't heard of this, but like we have six different ways of thinking. The simplest one is remembering memorization. And then from there, like you go to understanding where you can remember something, but put it in your own words and then applying your physically doing stuff with the information. The fourth level is analysis, where you're comparing, contrasting, the fifth is evaluates. So you're like forming an opinion. And the highest level is creativity. And that's when you're using your imagination. And so this was a huge emphasis when I entered the profession. And I thought like, oh, well, I need to get to the highest level of blooms. So imagination is so important. So all of my class focus should be on getting to these high levels, which is fine. And that's true. But it turned out it wasn't a hierarchy. It's more like a ladder. Mm-hmm. And if you skip those bottom rungs, you just fall flat on your face. Because to be creative, you have to have information in your brain to be creative with. Absolutely. You're not going to know how to make a animation about the life cycle of a butterfly if you don't know the steps of it. Exactly. Right? Yes. Um, and I think, I think taking kind of blooms and almost giving the book that outline of setting it that way is really, really useful to teachers again, because it's like, we can access that. It's, it's something like that. You said that teachers are familiar with just like, even if it's not something we look back at constantly or something like that, we're like, Oh yeah, I know about that. Um, Bloom's taxonomy. What was that? The 1950s or 60s? Yeah. It's been around a long time. Right. And I think that's really cool because there are some things that we look at that have lasted Mm -hmm. in education and like, we can look at Bloom's taxonomy and like you based a book, not on it, obviously. But it's pretty close. But it, aligned. But it yeah. aligns, right? It still aligns with like how we can see both like anecdotally, but also scientifically how kids learn. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other side of that, there's a lot that has changed in our ideas about education. Do you have any thoughts on like things that maybe we have ditched because for scientific reasons? Is there something that teachers do or continue to do that's like, no, that's not going to work anymore. Yeah. Something I, I didn't do at the beginning of my career because I thought it was a waste of instructional time mm-hmm. would be like giving kids time to practice in class. I thought that it wasn't a good use of my time with yes. them and that they weren't getting their money's worth essentially of, you know, my brilliant expertise. Right. And I think, I think that that was something that was thought in teaching for a long time was that like teachers are there to teach, like to talk at children. We disseminate knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't that I thought that, but I just, I wanted every moment of my class to be like really efficient use of time. And I thought giving kids time to practice a skill 
wasn't necessarily a good use of time. Like you would walk into a classroom and teachers would be like, oh yeah, they're just rehearsing for their presentations. I'd be like, oh, fluff. That person was lazy today. That per- that teacher's hung over today or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah. But what I found out through my research was that providing practice is so important. And it's not that you're just like walking around the room observing the practice is only valuable if you're giving feedback. Mm -hmm. So it's a great time to give kids an opportunity to apply a skill and then you give them real-time feedback. Mm -hmm. And that's so much more valuable to them than you leaving a comment on their paper. Right. Uh, And on top of that, one of the things the research found was if I give you a 50-minute session of practice right before the exam, that is not nearly as valuable as giving you five 10-minute practice sessions throughout the week before the exam. I think a lot about like math students who know their multiplication tables and they practiced it so much that it frees up all this brain to mm-hmm. like do more complex skills yes, and that is, themselves. Yeah. I before I was teaching, I was a math para and that's what we would tell the students like they would look at us and say, why do I have to do this? Why do I have to know this? Because it is memorization, right? And I think there has been a turn on that where we're like, like you were saying, where we value, yes, we've got like the creative side and using your imagination, but like in order for a student to do long division mm-hmm. in a reasonable amount of time, that is like showing that they can do it. They have to know those facts Oh, totally. because otherwise you just don't have what you need. So like you do need to memorize, right? So they get to the point of like, automaticity I think that's how you say it and then they know those facts so they're not wasting any of their working memory like that's already in context Mm -hmm. it can be a part of the new thing that they're learning without wasting energy and causing anxiety yes oh that can be a big part of it and so I talked to a lot of people outside of education and one of them was an NFL player or well he was a former NFL player Dexter McCluster. Oh, that was one of my questions. What are some of the coolest people that you got to talk to about this book? <laughs> he was up there and it was funny. My husband was like, "Oh, do you mind if I like meet up with you at the end of the interview and like say hi?" And I was like, "Yeah, I guess." I didn't even realize who this guy was, but he, he played for the Worcester Pirates for a little while yeah, too, while right? He or was still does. injured. His claim to fame is like his senior year at Ole Miss, he earned this reputation as the only SEC player in history to rush over a thousand yards and receive 500 yards in a single season. And then he got drafted by the Kansas City Chiefs in 2010 in the second round too. And then he went to the Pro Bowl in 2013, flew his whole family out to Hawaii. So he's a big deal. And he told me his career highlight was a punt return against the New York Giants. And he said, like, he was on the field and he's making moves and he didn't even realize what his body was doing. Like, mm-hmm. it just did it with this automaticity that we were just talking about. And he makes this spin and another guy misses. And then, like, he ends up um, scoring and it's the most pivotal moment of the game. And then he watched the tape at the end and he's like, I don't even recognize myself. Like, wow. How did I do yeah. that? And it was because he had practiced so much, but with intention. That's the big thing is like if you practice all the time and you just go through the motions, yeah, maybe you know your multiplication facts, but you're not ready to apply them to calculus or whatever. No, absolutely. If you're just going through the motions in your football practice, like you're never going to get to that moment where you're 
automatic and you don't have to think about these really complex things that you're adding on top of the basic skills. Right. It would be like a student understanding that eight times three is 24, but not that that means that there are eight groups of three. Exactly. And so his level of practice with a good coach and good teammates to give him feedback was what allowed him to reach this level where it was like not even recognizable. He was like a superhero doing things he didn't even realize he could do. There's been um, an interesting turn lately, like in the NBA, for example, where rest is being really prioritized over practice. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think it's because they have found some of those things, not not to say that they're like not practicing any longer, but having intention. Right. Right. And so not only are they, I think, probably in practices trying to be more intentional about what they do, probably team to team, it varies. But with the intention of saying rest today, you Mm -hmm. are a professional athlete. And I always go back. I know we talked about doing a little pop culture in 2002, I believe. Maybe I could have this off. Um, Allen Iverson, who played for Philadelphia 76ers, he's one of the – he's very, very good at basketball, but he's one of the coolest, like, professional athletes ever. He's just, like – he just – he just like had the dopest vibes. Um, and there's a very, very famous clip of him being asked about missing practice. He had missed some practices and like reporters noticed. Mm-hmm. And the clip went viral. It is like a big deal because it is kind of like it's very funny. Like it's an insane watch where he basically then to the reporter and the whole crowd is like practice. You want to talk about practice, <laughs> not the game, not the game. And then he t- he's basically like, not the game that I pour my heart into, that mm-hmm. you see me on the court. He makes the point. He's like, you see me on the court and you see the way I play. And you tell me, do I need to go to practice? Mm-hmm. And so it, the idea isn't don't pra- don't go to practice, but be mindful of how right. you're Make practicing, right? And if, and if someone is demonstrating that they're capable of doing something, that doesn't mean they should stop practicing doing it, but that maybe they should rest or maybe well, there's like other things said, to right? be done. A 50 minute intensive practice session is a lot less valuable than five, 10 minute practice sessions when it comes to like recalling. I was about to say we're recalling memory, right? Recalling and you, information. You're saying memorization. We think of at least in my teacher preparation program at Fordham university, mm-hmm. 2009, right? They would say like, Oh, memorization. That's the lowest level. And that's mm-hmm. true. But it's also a really important skill. And so it's still a level. Writing this book (laughs) was the first time I learned how you memorize something. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm very lucky. You're very lucky. It comes naturally. For you, it's probably a curse because you have, like, a photographic I have, yeah, I have one of those memories where, like, I learn a piece of information and it just makes more room in my head. It just, like, pushes other things aside but not out. Uh, it is mostly a blessing. It's only a curse when I'm like feeling anxious <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no, what did I say? But for so many kids that we work with and people you encounter probably at your job, like that's not natural. No. And I didn't actually realize that until I was an adult that my memory is just like I have a very, very good memory. I didn't realize that that was why I might have like had an advantage in taking standardized tests yeah, or doing trip. People say, oh, you're so smart because I am good at trivia. I know a lot of trivia and like, I do think I'm smart, but it's not because I sat in the car on long car rides and read trivial pursuit cards for fun. That's not what makes me smart. It just means I have a good memory. Um, And you happen to also be able to use that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Sure. But 
The best. Yes. Okay. So this is the best metaphor I've been able to come up with. Your working memory. So like, I don't know, the teacher tells you something you need to know to do your essay. You can hold four new pieces of information at a time. Most people will only ever be able to hold four pieces of information at a time. So I thought about it like when I worked at RMC Abbey, holding four plates. Mm -hmm. It took me a really long time to learn how to do it. But once my fingers knew how to do it, I could. You know, you could hold four at a time. I could never hold more than four. They would fall over the floor. But the plates could, for me hold more on them the plates could get heavier and it was the same balance I could still hold four plates because it's the same positioning on my hands but now instead of them holding let me think of a good arm see something instead of them holding what do we have chicharrones a crackling song yeah uh now the plate is holding a dish of macaroni and cheese right it's much heavier Mm -hmm. so anyway I think Your long-term memory is really important because it contributes those heavier bits. You can't ever hold more than four new pieces of information, but the pieces you're holding can get a lot bigger. Mm -hmm. And that's because you already have a context built up in your long-term memory. And so that was like mind-blowing for me. Another thing I didn't realize was there's this whole bit of research that your memory is more effective when there's a positive connotation with what you're memorizing. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. I was thinking about you too and like how you're on Wikipedia every single day, right? Just reading things. Yeah, I will just sit and then I'll have one tab open and then I have nine and I don't know two hours go by. So I am curious just in regular life, why bother memorizing anything if you could just Wikipedia it? When do you memorize stuff in life? Right? I don't know. I'm trying I feel to like the last time I memorized something, I like memorize, I memorize things like some practical information, just like me. Like I like have my credit card number memorized, like okay. my dad, which is don't do that, by the <laughs> way. you're just going to purchase yeah, things don't, constantly. But like I always do. I feel like, but I also feel like it's almost like a security blanket. Like mm-hmm. if I had to get something on my, if I had to order something on my phone or something in my wallet, I don't know. Um, but right, it's true. Like when, when do we use that part? I think, I think we used to. Right, we used to memorize yeah. phone numbers. We used to memorize like the channel numbers. Oh, totally. Stuff like that. Um, and like even adults because used it to was do that too. Utilitarian. Yeah, it's like useful information I might need mm-hmm. in a, a bind. Yeah, and I think of outside of like studying for a test. Mm-hmm. In that sense. We don't, right? Right, because of our phones. And so that's actually like hindering creativity, right? We're so focused on creativity. But if you have nothing memorized, unfortunately, there's not a lot you can utilize in your creativity, Mm. which is crazy. I I mean, not crazy, but it's just like so obvious and I had never thought of it. Right, no, it is. And and there's a lot of things in this book that feel like that, that feel very obvious and applicable outside of the school, like a classroom, I think, definitely. I, and you know this because you had my job before, <laughs> I have 27 classes of students in like Crazy. grades three through five in my and what class. what do you see like once every six days or seven days? Once every six days, yeah. It's a lot. It's crazy. Um, but I'm thinking – of myself, but also of others, right, who maybe teach a special or who just, like, don't see their kids every day. Mm-hmm. 
and maybe also just think of other special special subjects, right? Like art, music. How can we use this book? And I teach us like technology and STEM class. I forgot to mention that. How can this <laughs> book be applied like in specialized areas? Yeah. Specifically because it can be really challenging, a challenging undertaking to do, for example, like a STEM project Mm -hmm. with students that you see once every six days Mm -hmm. who are like nine. (laughs) Right. And how do we do it? So this isn't my immediate answer, but it does remind me that like at the beginning of my career, I never would have even enjoyed this book I would have been like this is trash you're trying to make everyone's life easier you're supposed <laughs> to be here you? <laughs> till the end of the day and be the last car in the parking lot and now I'm like okay here's how you can do the least amount of work mm-hmm. and get the most return think smarter not harder yeah I've definitely changed I also was a big uh fan of cutesy projects in the beginning and now I realize like sometimes the shortest path to the goal is the best way to achieve the goal. Yeah. So there's this study about people going to the gym, and it's from a New York-based marketing firm. They're called Distillery. But they tracked 7.5 million mobile devices over the course of one month, and they found that a longer commute to the gym obviously was associated with fewer visits. But I didn't realize, like, how small that margin had to be to make a huge difference. Oh, wow. Is it, like, 15 and 18 minutes? It was that's like, like the line for me. I mean, actually, <laughs> it depending on. So they're in New York taking the subway. Probably. Oh, yes, 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 yes. Um, so people who go to the gym once a month travel a median distance of five miles. Those who go five or more times a month travel 3.7 miles. But like five or more times a month versus yeah. one time. And it's just a mile and a half difference. Like, I don't right. know. I just thought that was crazy. But it's it's so true. And so taking the shortest path to your destination is so important for teaching, but also, like, for everything else. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I want to, like, get something to eat or get a cool drink, and I come t- and I think to myself, should I drive to Hudson? Because there's <laughs> lots of stuff there. And I then I know. think, no, I don't want to drive to Hudson. It's too far away. If you're not from this area, it's not that far. I it know. feels very far, though. It's funny. It's, like, 18 minutes. Like right, and that's, like, driving versus even, like, riding a subway, which is very different. So or walking, right? Part of accomplishing whatever you're trying to do is just setting the goal so that you can take the most direct path. You being like, okay, this week I'm going to Hudson on Tuesday. Then when you're hungry on Tuesday, it's not this big like fight with yourself. Yes. You're just like, oh, nope, I set a goal. I'm, I'm going, going to, to do it. Yes. So goal setting is a huge thing in education where we're not legally obligated, but it's in the teacher evaluation rubric, the official one put out by the state of Massachusetts (laughs) and probably every other state. Yes. You have to post these goals on the board every day and share them explicitly with your kids. And I don't remember seeing that as a kid, right? No, it definitely started in probably about 15 years ago. And I remember noticing it. And then when I started teaching me like, why do I have to do this? Yeah. Why do I have to do it, Sarah? Well, okay. And that's the thing. My TikTok is filled because I wrote this book with like unhappy, disgruntled teachers. And so many of them are like, why do I have to post an objective? I did my own research. It didn't well, make a difference. I, spoiler alert. I Once I actually started being better about it, 
and like pointing it out all the time, I do think it does help. But Sarah's going to tell us why. It does. It, mm-hmm. An average gain of 12 percentage points for learners exposed to goal setting during lessons. So like a kid that you set the goal with at the start of class who scores um, a 62 compared to a kid where you didn't tell them what the goal was and they scored a 50. And that is like a, a sizable difference, 12%. Yeah. And so I'm like, oh, by me just telling you what I want you to learn in kid-friendly language, you're going to be 12% more likely to learn it? Right. And did you say that's like on average or a median? Let's see. Because a, that that could also mean that there's like average. An 18-point difference. Right. Sometimes, right? Or, or less. Or less. But right. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or like a seven. Why does it help? Like I'm thinking, and this is K-3, but I'm thinking specifically like third, fourth, and fifth graders because mm-hmm. they're my kids. Why does it help, for example, like a 10-year-old to know what they're supposed to like get out of a lesson? So a huge part of this, this is where the social emotional learning comes in. It's trauma reduction, right? You're being trauma informed by telling them what to expect. And that goes with posting an agenda, which is another thing they force you to do where you're like on your evaluation, we get performance evaluations so it depends how new you are, but like at least five times a year, someone comes in unannounced to do a performance evaluation and with a scary, uh, like <laughs> a notepad iPad or something, like, uh, like checking boxes and writing things down. Having your objective and an agenda posted are so important because they shut down the stress response. And I spoke with this brilliant woman, she's from UMass, and she trained all the teachers in my district. Her name's Dr. Heather Forky. But she said, most people can remember the end of March 2020 with everything out of routine. You spent the day spinning and thinking, I should be doing something. I know there's something I should be doing, but I can't think of what it is. Did you have that experience? Yes. Where you're like, I don't know, a whole day went by. What do I do? Yeah. I was supposed to do something, but I don't know what. Like anything. There's nothing for me to do, but I feel like I didn't do it. So that was the impact of stress hormones. And they hit the part of your brain that's called the prefrontal cortex and it's responsible for keeping you organized and, and focused for children that's something that's not that's like developing it's right? developing exactly so what forky's research showed was that if you're really straightforward about your agenda and your goals it can shut down the stress response before it starts for our kids right and i think some people think that stress response is like running out of a classroom or something no. like that and sometimes stress response is like avoidance Trying to continue going in the bathroom. Sometimes stress response is talking out to just, like, get a friend's attention. It can be, like, any number of things. And every kid has it. You don't have to be mm-hmm. a kid with an anxiety right. disorder. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Sarah and I talked about this briefly before we started recording. And then I was like, I should save it. But there is an area that um, – there's an area of the book that I found very useful. And also because Sarah has been making – Fun videos about it. But it talks about how making predictions can help keep information in memory, store information in our memory. And it's funny because in that section, Sarah talks about this podcast. It's getting meta. Um, Sarah mentions this podcast and mentions how in what was that 2018 19 yeah and I think looking back I'm now like these were just like conversations we're having that's okay yeah but because it's still it applies but it was Um, like making predictions at the Oscars yes and talking and and basically thinking like how making predictions at the Oscars and help you remember 
what movies were at the Oscars maybe, right? And which yeah. would which would apply. It's it's basically like kind of the opening to the chapter. But it was funny because I was reading it and I was chuckling to myself because when I was like from when I was like 14 until I was like 24. Um so for like 10-ish years I was super super into the Oscars. Mm-hmm. But also just like film award season in general, probably even like TV award seasons, stuff like that. And I was like, that's what I would like. That was like my hobby in high school. Like some people like did sports and I just like would watch movies and keep notebooks on them (laughs) Um, where I would have pages that had like one category be like best supporting actress. And I would just have like lists and movies to watch. But it's funny because I did that really seriously. Like even through college, I did a lot of it and I would watch the movies. Part of it was that I was prognosticating. Mm-hmm. It was things that I wanted to see, but also to win. But it was a lot of I would go on blogs and websites and be part of this like community of people who was trying to figure out who would win Oscars. And I haven't done that in a while. I still pay attention. I still love it. But it's I'm not serious about it anymore. And so I, was, I said to Sarah, I was like, if you asked me, like, name three movies that came out in like 2019, I'd be like, I don't know. We need to start gambling. <laughs> right, yes. we do. But but it is it's like placing a bet yes. on anything. It makes right. It gives attention. you invested. Absolutely. Um, but then it was funny because I said, well, if you ask me, like, name some movies that came out in 2009, I could name, like, 20. Yeah. So it's – it is – and so I was – was when you were really – Yeah, I was. I was deeply invested. And in, like we said, like, my memory is also very good. So I was paying attention and just, like, those things stayed there. But also, like, I was – I was. I was really invested. I was invested not only, like, from the logical side of predicting and wanting to be right, but also very much on the emotional side. Yeah. Um, and so I really liked that area of – being emotionally invested, but then also moving into that motivation part. Totally. Where, we, where you talk about how we shouldn't diffuse. I believe the word is diffuse. Like we shouldn't diffuse kids' emotions when yeah. it comes to what they're learning. Too, so, so predictions like an easy way mm-hmm. to manipulate. I don't manipulate. It's another bad yeah, word. Where manipulate like, literally. Yeah. In the sense of. But you can engage their emotions so easily with a prediction. Mm-hmm. Definitely the Oscars is one where I'll always make a prediction and then also I'll look at who's nominated and I pay way better attention to those movies when I'm watching them that like I'm not folding laundry. I'm not texting because I want to be a part of the conversation. This movie is capital I important. That's right. (laughs) It feels like that, right? I think it applies to fantasy football. People sometimes play or play fantasy football who like don't actually care about football. But it makes the whole thing more exciting. They're engaged. Okay, so first of all, I am worried that you said you haven't seen any movies lately because I have an anticipation guide for you. I have. Oh, I have. No, no, no. I just like. I just don't remember <laughs> movies that came out like a few years ago. Just a couple all. years. Okay, yes. that makes sense. I think the easiest way to start making predictions is to give anticipation guides to people, to your students, and that's simply coming up with some provocative questions and saying, agree or disagree. I just did that. Uh, Whoa. I had no idea. It's huge. And then when you, when they come to the answers naturally in your classroom, they're going to put it together and be like, I did thumbs up for that. I was wrong. Or yeah, I did thumbs up for that. Miss O'Connor, I knew this. I knew it. Yes. And right. Even things like that, like gamifying things, right? Yeah. How do we motivate kids? Oh, okay. So real quick, let's do this anticipation guide. Molly, agree or disagree? You need to suffer to make great art. <laughs> I disagree, but I also 
Well, actually, I'll listen to more questions. But uh, yeah, I disagree. I well, think any person can make great art. Yes. Yeah. I right? It's like, like, does like, anyone have a comment? Wow, I noticed the class is like 50-50 on that, you know? I'm so philosophical. Yes. So okay. no, I disagree. Agree or disagree. You need a good reason to end a friendship with someone. Well, what constitutes a good reason? Yeah, I guess it's up to you. I guess it's like you need a good reason to intentionally cut off a friendship and set boundaries. But, like, if you just ghost someone because – oh, I guess that wouldn't be a good reason. I guess my answer is what is a good reason. Okay. <laughs> all right. No, that's fine. And all that's right. all it is, too. Yeah. They're setting, a, like, some emotional stakes right now. So right. Molly had – she's like, hmm, when we go and read whatever story she's clearly talking about, is there going to be a good reason? Do I think it's a good reason? Does that person think it's a good reason? Okay. Agree or disagree? People who are boring are not worth your time. I disagree. But no one wants to be bored. <laughs> right? I, totally. Is this about bad art, friend? No. <laughs> okay, last one. I would rather cut off my own finger than have to talk to an uninteresting person every day. Um, disagree, but now is it about Banshees of Innocence? Yes. <laughs> so I was like, wait a minute. I should have gotten it after the second question. No. Because, like, the first one. I was trying to be mysterious, but have you seen the movie already? I still haven't watched it. So now. But I have seen more movies come in. Yes. You're going to be thinking about these things. And it's just like gambling. You've made a prediction. You've set your stake in the ground. And now you want to see whether or not you were right. Absolutely. You did mention motivation and gamifying. I spent a lot of time talking about that and learning about that for the book. And it's things, again, like some of it comes naturally where it's stuff I've had success with by accident. And then I'm like, oh, that worked. But now I have some of the research to back it up. And this relates to the goals to people with a stronger sense of purpose are better at like interpersonal skills and they end up having more opportunities, more fulfillment, self-reported, and they make more money. That's so interesting because I was going to say that sounds like capitalism. It doesn't. Not like even just like as a, just as a neutral statement, like when you said people with, what was it? The net, well, not an end goal, but with purpose. With a sense of purpose. So like if you, yeah, of course, right? Like if you show up at an event where you don't know everyone, but you're trying to like, yeah. Make headway in a certain community or in a, in a different career path. Like, right. Like if you have that purpose, of course, you're going to move forward. Totally. Okay. So there's like a purpose and identity process lab that exists. So that's where this research comes right. out. of. But they say the best thing to ask yourself to figure out, like, do I have a sense of purpose is do you feel your life has a clear direction? And do you feel your daily activities are engaging and important? What happens if you say no? If you say no, you lack a sense of purpose, which just means that you're not going to be as motivated in your job. Right. Or in any or in life area. Right. Exactly. Interesting. This is a lot of um, we call it metacognition in Mm -hmm. the education field, but it's a lot of thinking about thinking Mm -hmm. is really what it is. And so I would recommend, honestly, this book or any book, (laughs) (laughs) but like if you're just interested in like how brains work. This is a great tool for that. And the best book I read in my research, or the most like mind-blowing one for me, was called Uncommon Thinking. And it just explained how the brain works. There's an octopus throughout the book, and they like 
Man, so many octopi. Is it the octopus who like predicted the World Cup or became best friends with that weird guy? It's not. But two other different octopi. There are so many octopi in popular culture right now. Well, I think that octopi are like aren't they brilliant and also like have emotional Yes. So like there's a lot of very short lifespans. Yeah, and I think I think there's a lot of just like what can octopi show us, I guess people are looking (laughs) for, right? So another major thing when it comes to motivation is praise and recognition. And I know that, right? I learn every kid's name right. on the first day or I got try it. to. But there's this Brigham Young University study from 2021. And they found that praising middle school students individually improved on task behavior by 60 to 70%. If I see one kid misbehaving, then mm-hmm. I'll be like, good job, Sally. Good job, Johnny. Good job, Bobby. I see so-and-so making a good choice. Yeah. I have um, had a student who, like, one day had a really tough day. Mm-hmm. And I literally – and has struggled at mm-hmm. times um, or had struggled. And one day I pulled this kid aside and I was like, hey, listen. I saw that you tried to make good choices today. Yeah. I noticed it. I want you to know, even though you had a hard time, I could tell that you were trying, right? Mm-hmm. And then that kid was like a different student. Totally. Beyond that. Be- like after that day, it was like, yeah, do they still struggle sometimes? Yes. Kids, but she saw kids me. Kids. Miss O'Connor right. saw me. Yeah. yeah. I was like, I just want you to know that I noticed that, right? And so like I have had a student where like I – that a kid had a tough day. I said, here, come here. It was right before report cards came mm-hmm. out. And I was like, I want to show you the comment that I wrote on your report card. Mm-hmm. And it basically was like, so-and-so had a hard time with this. I've seen a lot of improvement. Keep it up. And yeah. I was like, so can we keep it up, right? And growth is huge too. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that just because it's like part of the canon at this point. But <laughs> all of this research shows that if you say – wow, you worked really hard at that instead of like, wow, you're really good at that. The student or just the athlete, anyone Mm -hmm. who's trying to attempt a task will continue to try harder, put forth more effort. If you say you're really good at that, they get afraid that like it was a fluke and they won't be able to replicate it. And then they don't push themselves. And that's trauma response again. Yeah. Oh, you're right. In a way, right? (sighs) It is. It's all connected. So I talked to a screenwriter I was talking about motivation, and she writes for Nickelodeon. So, so did she, she wrote, write for television um, shows? Star Trek Prodigy? Below Deck? Lower Decks? Uh, Star Trek Prodigy. Oh, I thought she was on Lower Decks. Sorry. I don't... Is that another Star Trek, though? Yeah. yeah. It's, yes. It's a different Star Trek cartoon. <laughs> but her name is Lisa Boyd, and she was talking about how kids have way higher expectations for television than most adults. Because adults, like, want a procedural, right? Sure. They want to feel safe. And you've talked about We've this talked so about this a lot. Much. Chopped. Like, comfort television. Chopped. Project Runway. Bake Off. All of those things give me that. And she said, kids, you can trust a lot more when you're, like, writing something that's a little bit different or offbeat or innovative. And, in fact, they ask for it. They want it. Right. And I think you can see that going back to, like, the 1990s on Nickelodeon, right? Yeah. They were out there. Oh my god, they're so weird. Yeah. yeah. Remember that face? There's just this thing burr, called burr, face. Burr. Yeah. Yeah, I loved face. I thought he was my friend. <laughs> so when I was interviewing her, she said she trusts that kids can understand drama, conflict, suspense, and they appreciate it in a way that older audiences do not. They root for complex characters 
and they like to interpret emotional consequences. They have a fresh and biting sense of humor. And I just thought that was so interesting because, again, it's like you're getting to them before they've been ruined by the fear of failure. Sure. Like they're willing to take risks and try something weird and different. Right. And then you get to like even middle school, later middle school, high school, and – the structure of the social structure there makes it really hard. Oh my God. Right? Of course, to, to be take any sort of risk. And this, so Lisa has written for all kinds of shows, right? Yeah. Too, there too. So she's written for other audiences, not just kids. Oh, yeah. And so like, this is an insight that she's taking from she's doing She's going to kill me because she hated, I don't, she, you know, this wasn't like the show that she would watch in her free time, but Outlander was a show that she worked on for a what? long time. Yeah. Star, the stars, the international stars hit Outlander. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's amazing. But she that's worked, a very different audience, right? Yes. That's a show that has violence, sex, sex, exactly. sexual violence, like where then you have writing for kids. And so you get an understanding of the, of how the audience, how audiences react and how right. they're different. It's super motivating to take risks because humans are built on that. That's why we jump out of planes, right? That's why people do drugs for the first time. They want a new experience. Mm -hmm. And some of them are healthy and some of them are not. Gamifying things, I think, is, you know, coming up everywhere, right? Like, Mm -hmm. more people watch the League of Legends championship than the Super Bowl last year. Really? Yeah, isn't that wild? That is wild. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. And I think this also goes back to, we talked about being intentional in practice. I think that that can be applied almost anywhere, but especially in gamifying, right? Don't just yeah. gamify something to make a game out of it. How are, how is it gonna connect? And I think the book you can really, you get, yeah. you get, if you read the book, <laughs> you can Thanks, make those connections. Cause I do, I think, I think teachers are always trying to gamify stuff. Right. And it's like, how can we do that, but make it better maybe. But like, Games do look a lot like work, don't they? And school. Yeah. Like, it's basically just work and school in a fake place. <laughs> right. Sometimes, yeah, I'll be like, it's a game. And then they're like, I have to write a paragraph. Like, It's a game, though. But the difference. Also, they're not writing paragraphs. I'm talking games, straight video games. Oh, yeah. Like, you are living a life where you just have to, like, complete tasks do on tasks. time. Yeah. yeah. And, like, earn enough money or maintain yeah. your health. It looks a lot like work. It is. It's work. It's like or self care sometimes. Mm-hmm. But the primary difference between a game and actual work is the liability, right? Where yes. you can fail <laughs> in a game. Oh and yeah, you get a new life or you restart it or whatever. When I play Diablo two, <laughs> and I and my character in Amazon gets killed by a squall of skeletons. Guess what? I regenerate in the village again. There are no consequences. Well, actually, I do have to. I lose all my items. I have to go back and find my dead body. Yeah. It is. I get a new life. If you fail at actual work, there's like life altering consequences. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't have any money, you can't pay your rent. Yeah. If my Amazon got killed by a squall, a horde of skeletons in this game, she's going to be dead in real life. So there is a Wharton School professor who like studies games. The Wharton School of Business. (laughs) His name is Ethan Malik. And he said, humans love the illusion of danger and pain without actual danger or pain. And that's, that's why, why we ride roller coasters. Exactly, exactly. And so games and simulations can have the same effect. And it's a great way to practice, which we talked about earlier. And the best example he gives 
in all of his research is Top Gun. I know you love Top Gun. I do love Top Gun. <laughs> but Top Gun is like an actual simulator. That's where the term comes mm. from. Mm-hmm. It was a huge success story during the Vietnam War. The Air Force and the Navy both were like coming to the realization their pilots were underperforming. And so the Air Force got a bunch of money and the Navy got a bunch of money. Same amount. The Air Force used its resources to upgrade all of their planes and their equipment. And the Navy made Top Gun. The Navy made Top Gun. An elite academy in Southern <laughs> Oh, God. Where is it, Top Gun? Is well, it Florida? This, it doesn't matter where it I'm, is. <laughs> I'm even, like, beyond that referring to, like, oh, yeah. software. Like, a oh, simulator. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, that is the movie. It's the name. I'm sorry. It's yeah. like the whole... Well, not really. But, yeah, like, the whole, like, program is called Top Gun. But, yes, it is specifically... Elements of it are pilots doing really things, and then yeah, I'm talking about like a video game, like a VR experience, a virtual reality experience. And so, Top Gun Mm -hmm. proved far more effective than splurging on very expensive planes and equipment. And that's a great example of gamification. Now, I will say, and I know this teacher I'm talking about is like so beloved, so sorry, I'm not gonna name him, but I do talk about it in the book. Just because you can gamify something does not mean that you have to. That's true. And I know who Sarah's talking about when she said it. Oh, there's this guy I worked with. And it was the start of my career. And he would do a slave auction every year. And it was this thing. I participated in that in eighth grade. It was like an institution in this town. It was. It like, was like normal. Everyone would look forward to the slave auction. And so my first the year. The kids. To be clear, like it wasn't like parents were like. No, no. But the kids. They'd yes, be like, still, oh, yeah. it's a fun. It's a game. Yeah. It's a game day. Yes. And my first year I was appalled. And I said something to him. And he was like, well. I let all of the black kids opt out, so it's fine. And it just the whole thing turned into right. a big issue. And then it becomes I put my foot like, in my mouth. He definitely put his foot in his mouth. And it was terrible, right? So yeah. like just because gamification makes people more engaged, or you think that it's like experiential learning too. Not everything is appropriate right. to be a game. Yeah. You know? Think about what it is. Right. Maybe Absolutely. Not a slave option. Yes. But moving on, one other thing I'll say is you mentioned like kids getting self-conscious. And I think self-explaining goes along with that. Yes. Do you ever talk to yourself? Um, yes. And it's funny though, like, or at least the times that I notice it are like funny and weird times. Mm -hmm. Like it's times when I'm like, I don't know, like I look, you know, I think, well, I think a lot of people do this, right? You look at your phone and you read something and you're like, oh my God. Yes. Like those times. But I talk to myself, I feel like a lot, not not even necessarily just when I'm alone, but when I've been alone for a long time. But for kids, it can be a really useful tool. And I also and I think that we don't always want to hear that no, that's not the way I want to put it. I was to say I don't sometimes we don't always want to hear kids talking. But Yeah, no, I think we all are constantly quieting our classrooms yeah. down. And that's fine. Like that's part of creating a routine but in what, a safe environment. But what can kids get out of self-explaining and like what is self-explaining exactly well it has a lot to do with like clearing the fog have you ever read a page and then at the end of that page you're like oh my god I read all the words I decoded them but I have no idea what I just read yes and in fact that same teacher (laughs) actually this isn't a knock this is more like the book but I read gods and generals when I was younger and I remember one night specifically reading a page like nine times well (laughs) 
that happens to everyone. I love yeah. to read. I just wrote this book, right? Mm-hmm. And I still, it happens to me all the time. Right. And it's really natural, but the easiest way to knock that is self-explanation. Sometimes it like happens out loud and that's what I encourage kids to do. And they're not self-conscious enough yet, especially at your grade levels, like third, fourth, and fifth, they'll do whatever. And they probably yeah, just talk to themselves all the time. Oh yeah. Because they haven't learned that like that's weird yet. Or that other kids think it's weird, right? Yeah. Some perception. But I think as adults, we don't do it a lot. And so one way to think about silent self-explanation is putting together a piece of IKEA furniture. What do you, so let's say like the the box arrives. Yes. What do you do? I first of all probably don't open it for at least a week or two. All right. Then if I do, I pull all the pieces out get stressed, leave it for an hour, then go back. <laughs> but eventually you're going to have to read all those weird Swedish words. Yeah. And for me, I would just try to put it together. I'd be like, yep, let's go. I would get frustrated. I would mm-hmm. probably do things wrong. Why is that experience so frustrating? How can we be helped? I get, I'm guessing well, we can self-explain. I guess, yeah. So I was thinking too about I have the same approach as you. I'll right. look at the picture and try to put it yep, together. Yeah, I'll just try to do it. I'll just be like, I can do it. And then my husband, very efficient. He'll read step by step and like put it together. Does he read it first? I think he even might. I don't, it doesn't even matter. Yeah. He, he might go step by step. But the research shows that if you and I then had to put that Ikea furniture together again, if we struggled with it and we were just looking at the picture, like as I am wont to do. Yes. And, like, figured out how to put it together based on the picture and made mistakes along the way. We're going to remember the next time a lot better than my husband who just followed the instructions. Ah. Now, with Ikea furniture, that's not the best. You're not going to buy the same thing again. It makes sense to follow the instructions. But with a math problem, give the kid the scratch paper of somebody else and ask them how they solved the problem. They're going to be able to do it when they encounter the problem on the test a lot better than a kid that just went in cold and like solved it based on your brilliant instruction. Yeah. And that was one of the parts that I found really, really cool in the self-explaining section is the example. I'm going to use the word example. The example of giving a student a problem that's already done and showing in both words and pictures how it was done. Yeah. And then asking the student to solve it. I, I, that I've never seen that. That blew my mind. And I was like, Oh, well, and, like, we give kids examples all the time, right? We do them as whole class, but we don't necessarily, like, put it right in front of them when they are independent. We give them the problem, but, right. like, giving them the problem with the solution and somebody's work. Mm-hmm. So and then, then asking them to tell you, well, how did they get there? Right. Or even just giving someone's problem and then giving them the work and then giving kids, like, a slightly different problem and asking them to do the same thing. Now they have to decode the puzzle above them. They're walking themselves through, okay, so, like, this matches with this. It was, yeah, I was like this, it was, I remember I flipped the page, I was like, whoa. Oh, I'm so glad. Well, and that's the whole idea is like, oh yeah, we're already doing this, but I should do it more. Right. I didn't realize it was so effective. Mm-hmm. That's self-explanation. Right. And so sometimes, yeah, when kids talk out in class, sometimes it's just to talk out or to make a joke. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's to say, oh, just like blank. Or mm-hmm. sometimes it is there, sometimes they are making those connections. And oh. that's even self-explaining. It's just them like verbalizing a connection that they have. And so giving them the chance to do that, right? Yes. And the last thing I I wanted to mention was making connections and how powerful that is. Synthesis 
And I think of it like a person, the old pictures of the phone operators. Or like the, the dispatch. Yeah, the, yeah. They're like connecting people to the right. Yeah. The phone lines. Yeah. But like just connections to anything, right? Like I'm constantly I, as a, doing STEM stuff. It's like, where have you guys seen that in real life? Stuff um, like that, you know? It's so true. And so I'm always asking kids to like make connections it's a really quick path to your long-term memory in many ways. Mm-hmm. But then there's also times where that turns into making assumptions. And so Ooh. even just my – I, like, prickled when you were like, oh, these kids raising their hands. No, it's, you said it really nicely. Being like, <laughs> oh, I have a connection to me. Oh. I have a connection to me. And, some, connect- and sometimes I'm like, put your hands Right, down. because sometimes you, like, <laughs> only have – 50 minutes. And I'm like, there are 30 of you. <laughs> yep, yep. It is. It can be a real challenge. But I, I appreciated that kind of just like, like wake up call, but just a little reminder. Like sometimes you just got to let them talk it out. Oh, totally. Mm-hmm. And they, they do. They make assumptions, right? And I always have this in my head. Like when you make an assumption, you make an ass out of you and me. But sometimes we refer to making assumptions as inference, right? right? Yeah. And I think... There's a delicate line mm-hmm. to tread there. Mm-hmm. Is that the expression? There's a delicate line. A fine line to walk. It's There's a yeah. fine line to walk. Yes. <sighs> so one of the people I talked to for the book is Lucy Hale. And she was like a zoo and museum director all She's over the country. so cool. We've interviewed her before. You She's can listen Michigan to now. you. She is. Yeah. You can listen to our episode um, with Lucy Hale. Yeah. It was it's like three just years pre-COVID, ago, right? Four years ago? I think it was just, yeah. And, I, and we looked at lots of... Um, Taxidermy. <laughs> we sure did. It was really fun. But I sat down with her. Oh, and she worked at, sorry, she worked at the Ecotarium in Worcester. That is why there was taxidermy involved. Yes, she yes, doesn't yes. just have it. <laughs> <laughs> she was talking about her training and how one of her first days in her first jobs, she gets to the zoo. And they've all read in textbooks, alligators cannot jump. So when an alligator comes in, it needs to be measured. And if you put it down, it's fine. It'll be safe. Alligators cannot jump. It is impossible. But all the new hires are around. Their job is to measure the alligator. The alligator's out in front of them. And what does the alligator do? It jumps. It jumps. And everyone's freaked out. Because alligators can't jump. And Lucy said... Saying an animal can only jump so high is like saying a human can only run so fast. Your calculations might be true until you meet Shikari Richardson or Usain Bolt. And that's <laughs> when you'll have to readjust your expectations. And I was like, oh, man. Because there's always someone who can do the thing better. Yes. Than you think, right? At there's an alligator that can jump higher mm-hmm. than you expected. Yeah. Textbook. Smart. Mm-hmm. And practical smarts are very different. Yeah. And the best students and the most successful people can connect the two. Right. And can take what they know. They know they know where they think they know. And connect it to what is happening or what's in front of them or what they read. Exactly. And one thing I learned was, like, the long-term memory is vast. It's huge. Space is not the issue. It's organization. And so your brain is almost like Spotify, right? There's like millions of songs, but you need a really good algorithm. A bunch of weird genres that they invented. Oh, yeah. Tons. (laughs) And that your brain invented. And your brain is holding all that information, Mm -hmm. but like you will never be able to access it unless you have a good search feature. 
And that's really important too. And so like synthesizing, making connections between things and almost being able to form a map in your mind. Yeah. That is really interesting because it kind of goes back to that movie thing we talked about. A lot of times, I think I've told you this before too, a lot of the time when I like see a movie title in my brain, like in my mind's eye, if I see a movie title a lot of the time, not always, but there is like parentheses and a year next to it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like making the connection of like, I guess like looking at IMDb for a long time, but also just like <laughs> my brain puts those things together. Like yeah. I have a catalog for it and that's why I can, that's why I retrieve. That's mm-hmm. why people say, what, what year did that come out? I'm like, it's 1998. And someone says, I don't think so. And I'm like, I, I know, know that <laughs> is the case. And then I'll back it up. Cause then what happens is my brain will like, look, will shuffle through. I'll say, yeah, that movie came out in 1980. It was nominated for an Oscar. And then my brain will shuffle through and I'll find, I'll be like, and it was up against this, this and this. Yeah, it's, it's the web. It's memory like is nuts. Everything is connected. <laughs> and so sometimes if you pull out one strong memory, a bunch of things will come with it. Like a brain dump. Have you ever done something like that in your classroom? Yes. So Where, can you just explain? Or like the way that I've done it is like you basically have a subject. Mm-hmm. It could be something that the kids have already learned about or something that they you're gonna might teach. know about. Yeah, it might be something that you're like just trying to like pre-teach. But you basically are like... Okay. And I kind of actually, I've done something similar and a lot of teachers will be familiar with like a KWL chart, which is like similar in parts, but it's just the idea where I like recently have been like, what do you know about stars? And I'm talking about like stars in the sky. What do I know? What do I know? Right. And the kids for like, we did it verbally, but like I have had times where they've had paper or they've had like something in front of them to type where I'm just like literally just like list everything you know about this thing or Mm -hmm. say it it doesn't have to be sentences write words draw a picture dump the things out yes and then the w would be like what I wonder or want to know and then the l what I learned exactly so you do the l and that's like a tried and true like I remember doing those with teachers as a kid and that's one of those things that like sticks in a way only just because I think Honestly, giving the kids the chance to ask questions mm-hmm. and determine what they want to learn about a thing is like, and again, it huge. creates stakes for them, yep. emotional stakes for them. Like, yep. if I ask this question, I will find out mm-hmm. the answer. Yep. But they know a lot too. Kids know so much. Oh my God. It's always amazing. Mm-hmm. And so when we think of ourselves as the arbiters of knowledge, it's just wrong, yeah. right? The scholar academic mindset is just totally flawed. Why do we do brain dumps? Okay, so think of like a photo dump. During 2020 <laughs> was the first time I saw somebody explicitly use the word photo, photo dump. dump. Yeah. It was Ariana Grande. She got engaged. And there was a picture of <laughs> – I love it. I wrote it down. But um, there was a picture of – Oh, blurry outtakes of her fiance. It was the way that she announced she got engaged and it was like a picture of him, but it was blurry. He's the real estate guy. Yeah. Oh no. Oh, when she no, got no, engaged. No, no, like, no. Did she get engaged to Pete Davidson? She did, but this okay. is her current the guy, marriage. She's, yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. There was a picture of her diamond ring on a tattooed finger and there was like a bunch of other random stuff. Now I started to make assumptions, right? I start like putting together all of these, the carousel, Mm -hmm. if you will, Mm -hmm. and filling in the blanks. And (laughs) pop culture, maybe not always accurate, but in the classroom, super valuable. Yes. As they start to try to bridge all of these different concepts. why Why am I showing you these things? Yeah. It sticks with them and it 
helps to transition things from the working memory to the long-term memory. And so when you do a brain dump, one great thing you can do is after they've written down all the things they know and they want to learn everything, they just draw lines between the different concepts and try to make as many connections as they can. Like a web. Yeah, and explain, like, why are those things connected? Mm-hmm. <sighs> Where can we buy your book, Sarah? Where can we buy this book? Um, everywhere. Amazon. Okay, this is, like, insider info, but um, Barnes & Noble's mad that I haven't sold enough, like, from Barnes & Noble. Most sales are from Amazon. So buy it on Barnes & Noble, maybe? That seems like a Barnes & Noble problem. You have an event coming up. Yeah. Tell us about it. On Tuesday night, I am going to be with my mentor who helped me write this book, Jim Lane. And we're going to be at Tidepool Books, which who knew? I used to be obsessed with Tatnik Bookseller. Yes, right across, across the, street. the street, right? And this is a very similar vibe. Yes, Old you could go. Building. Oh, I've, I saw the pictures. I was yeah. like, why haven't I been there yet? Um you could go like get food at New Kitchen before at the old Tatnik Bookseller. And then go, maybe. So this, not that this is that. the new one. There is still one in Westboro. Yeah. Um, but. 5 5 5.30 at Tidepool Bookshop. Molly agreed to make some bake. There might be a bake sale. <laughs> I love that. Oh yeah, that's, God. yeah, it's going to be awesome. Cutest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for talking through all of this. You can leave a review on Amazon also. Oh, yeah, that's great. So, yeah, the things. Or in- Barnes & Noble. Oh, Barnes <laughs> & Noble. If you want to help me, request it from your local library. I, Worcester already has it, but, you know. Ooh. If you're from somewhere else, that's the best thing anyone can do for me. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. I've been Sarah. I've been Molly. And this is Pop It. Woo!